Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 4th, 2021. This is episode 2797 of the Survival Podcast. But it's episode one of the 2021 season of the Survival Podcast. Um, it almost feels kind of weird to say 2021, doesn't it? I'm sure a lot of people are really excited about getting rid of 2020, the year that was the booger you couldn't shake off, right? Um, but as I've said leading up to this, I don't think your life will be drastically different in January, February, March of 2021 than it was in, let's say, October, November, December of 2020. I think we've kind of reached a point here where we are where we are with this thing. And it's going to take more time for this to cycle through. Yes, the vaccine is here, which I won't be getting. Uh, but most people won't be getting, even if they want to, for months yet. Uh, so it takes time for that to build up. We're, we're going to see a precipitous drop-off in cases of COVID going, and it, I'd say honestly, not much further. Uh, because we're building up a great deal of what they now call natural immunity, right? They've separated it from herd immunity, which is the same damn thing, but they don't like the term being used that way. Only herd immunity can only come from vaccines, whatever, bullshit. Anyway, it's not going to change that much. It's not going to change that much. But you know what? It is a new year, and it's time for new things. And it's up to you how you live your life. And today I'm going to be talking about a subject completely unrelated to all of this. So if you're like, I don't want to talk about this, good, because we're not going to. We're going to talk about using small livestock to build fertility. There'll be a lot of this coming in little pieces and parts to Miyagi Mornings. I did do the first first episode of Miyagi Mornings video for the year uh, this morning. Released, I think it's episode 26 of Miyagi Mornings. Uh, but I, I said then that we'll be talking about this subject on the Miyagi Mornings uh, videos as well. But today we're going to take a look at a, a multitude of ways that we can take small livestock and harness their waste streams and their innate behaviors to build fertility so that we can grow plants for human consumption and so we can grow plants for the livestock themselves. And I think this is going to become more and more important as we go forward. Whether anybody wants to admit this or not, there is a massive global movement right now known as the Great Reset. And a lot of people want to make this out to be a conspiracy theory. It's just a conspiracy theory, okay? It was on the cover of Time Magazine last month. The cover. Not an obscure byline or something like that. The cover of Time Magazine. In fact, it was on the cover of Time Magazine the same week that the New York Times claimed that it was a conspiracy theory. So you live in, in, a, in a world of friggin' make-believe media at this point, okay? Either the New York Times is lying when they say it's a conspiracy theory, or Time Magazine is lying when they feature it on the cover of their... You take your pick. I know which one I believe. I believe the Great Reset's a thing because the people behind it say it's a thing. And I believe one of the things that, that they're pushing for very hard is a reduction in the consumption of protein, specifically meat and other animal products, and trying to feed the entire world on the back of the soybean. Which, if you want to live that way, go ahead, but I don't think that's a great way to live, and I think a lot of people that listen to this show don't think it's a great way to live. So we need to produce more of our own meat, because I think even though you're not going to see, a, 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 like, you know, by the end of the year, you're not going to be able to, like, be or be in a situation where you're going to, like, want to go to the store and buy some ribeyes and not be able to get them. I don't, I don't think that's your, we're, we're going to go there. I do think you're going to see a continuous pushing upward in the price of animal products. And less and less availability. And in some parts of the world, I don't think you will be able to get a lot of animal products. Some parts of the world right now, you already can't. The plan is to feed human beings like livestock because they want us to be like livestock. Rather than to be like the human beings that we really are. So we need to grow some of our own. We also need to look at some of the problems that the Great Reset claims to at least be trying to solve. And in some cases, those problems are actual problems. These include waste streams, so what's happening to the stream of waste. These include environmental problems and degradation. These are actual problems. And I think actually their solutions make the problems worse, whether that's by design or incompetence. I don't even care. I just think that's the case. But we do need to accept that there are some environmental, major environmental problems out there incredible environmental problems. We're going to go over one today that most people never even have heard of. But if you check into it, you're going to find out it's absolutely correct. 
We'll talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Western Botanicals. I love Western Botanicals because I love herbs. I think herbs are nature's gift to man for healing and health. And I think that's why the mainstream's not real fond of it, because you don't make a bunch of money on comfrey ointment. You really don't, especially if you're a company that makes their money by patenting, you know, drugs. Then you really aren't going to make money on something like that. So herbs are a key to our health, in my opinion, for both healing and for tonifying effects to keep us healthy. But it's hard to trust people in the space because it is a space that's full of a lot of claims that are just basically bullshit. Um, herbs won't fix everything, especially at certain points where the damage is, is, is severe. Like, oh, I don't know, if you get in a car wreck and have a yield sign in your spleen, you can put all the comfrey on it you want. You, you need as a surgeon at that point. Hopefully they can save your life. But when you can use herbs, you want a company you can trust. And Western Botanicals is a company you can trust. They've been with us nine years, folks. I actually think it's 10 years at this point. They've been with us 10 years. And if it's herbal and it's legal in the United States, you'll find it at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. You know, I talk about strategic relocation all the time. And one place you might want to consider strategically relocating to is the Free State, a.k.a. New Hampshire. Not just for what New Hampshire has to offer, but for the people who are there as part of this project. They are some of the best people that have each other's back, that I've ever met any place in the world, Infinity. They're really awesome. And what they're asking you to do right now is just, hey, why don't you come visit New Hampshire? Why don't you come visit, meet some people, have a vacation, but get a little look at what we're doing as well at the same time. If you're looking for a place to uh, go hang out, we can help you figure that out. You want a good pizza, you want a good view, whatever it is, we can help you. And I think if you meet the people, it might have a big a big impetus within you that maybe this is the right place to call home. You can learn more at fsp.org uh, and just go check out the website, and I think you'll find that it really is just a tremendous opportunity right now uh, for those who are willing to make the move. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into today's topic, which, again, we're talking about harnessing uh, small livestock, their behaviors and their waste streams to build fertility. So I want to start out with this from a different place than most of y'all would probably expect. And that is with a quote by Bill Mollison. And I found this really interesting. It was in a series of videos that I was fortunate enough to come by during my, my shutdown time. There's 15 of them. And they're from a PDC that he taught in Glen Rose, Texas, back in 1994-1995. And in one of them he said, a recess, a resource left unused is the definition of pollution. And by the way, I have all 15 of these videos on, a, on my Odyssey channel and on their own Odyssey channel for you as well. I'll have a link in my video notes today for you. But when I heard that, it really led me to want to do this show today. A resource left unused is the definition of pollution. And I just wonder how many problems we could solve by identifying a resource and figuring out how to use it. I don't know that we can solve every problem that we have that's environmental in nature as far as pollution this way. If we're, if we're doing innate harm in the collection of one resource that's creating another resource that we're not using, there may be no real good way to harness it. Maybe it would have been better to avoid it in the first place. It makes me think of all the coal mining that I grew up with around me and how it created leaching sulfur into the watershed And that sulfur would then oxidize, which basically is rusty sulfur, and that pulled the oxygen out of the water and um, then basically destroyed all life in the streams that that, that happened to. And if the, the real solution there wasn't to harness the sulfur. It was to cap the leakage so that it would stop going into the water. But it still fits Bill's definition of a resource left unused. And he was talking about a much more basic way when it comes to homesteaders and farmers and gardeners and things like that. He, I think what he was talking about when he, when he said this, and it caught my attention, was if you have a chicken lay an egg in a chicken coop and you leave it there, it's pollution. That's what he said, a resource left unused is the definition of pollution. And so I want to think about the resources we have today from livestock, not just in what comes out the back end, not just the poop, right? But the animal's willingness to be what it is. The duck's willingness to be a duck, the chicken's willingness to be a chicken, the pig's willingness to be a pig, right? All of these animals that we have have things that they're happy to do. 
They, they almost can't not do them. They're intrinsic, innate abilities that these animals have and, and behaviors. A chicken is going to scratch. If we channel that, we can use that resource that we were otherwise not using. But I also want to talk about something in it that was another example of Bill dropping something on me and me going, that, that can't be true. But yeah, I mean, I know better by now when, when Bill Mollison made a claim that, that it's true. But he was, he was basically talking about in one of the other videos. And again, these are fantastic videos. They're about an hour long each. Bill Mollison at his prime teaching, you know, almost 20 years ago, I guess now. Uh, actually, 25 years ago. And um, he was talking about how basically you need, it was in the one on home gardening. That if you want to eat plants, you pretty much have to grow your own food. Because he was talking about all these reasons that the food is toxic. And he, he dropped this thing that in the fields are radioactive from all of this phosphate that they keep dropping on these fields. The fields are radioactive. And any field that's been farmed for any length of time, he gave all these other reasons to not just keep dropping NPK and phosphates on these fields, but one was that they're radioactive. Fertilizer's radioactive. And, and I thought about this, and there's a lot of mitigation in it. And it's important you know the mitigation so you're not misled by it. But the reality is lots of things are radioactive. Bananas are radioactive. Bananas, uh, potassium-40, I think, is the isotope in them. And they're so radioactive that a large shipment of bananas at times might actually trip the radiation detection stuff at U.S. ports where it looks like somebody's trying to smuggle radioactive material for a dirty bomb in or something like that if it's a big enough shipment of bananas. So radiation is not something that we need to constantly fear all aspects of because we have evolved to deal with some level of radioactive exposure because there's literally radiation in our bodies. You can live the healthiest life in the world and some of the potassium in your body, which you need to survive, is radioactive, much like the potassium in a banana. If you want a reason not to eat a banana, I can give you a lot that have to do with sugar and, and insulin spikes and have nothing to do with the radiation of a banana. So, yes, there is radiation in many things, but there's a significant amount of radiation in fertilizer. In fact, large stockpiles of fertilizer can become radioactive hazards if there's enough of it in one place for long enough. Additionally, and this is one of the mitigating factors with the fertilizer that goes on the field, we don't just pull NPK fertilizer out of the ground, grind it up, and throw it on fields. We actually extract the parts we want by pouring acids on it. And we end up with a byproduct of this called a phosphogypsum, phosphoric gypsum. And this, again, it mitigates the fertilizer that goes on the field because a significant portion of the radioactive material and radioactive metals in that fertilizer is extracted, and therefore it doesn't go to the field, it's in the phosphogypsum. Let's stick to the field a second here. We've got a field, and we're going to put about 200 to 300 pounds of this stuff per acre on it per year. If we do that for 60 years, 1960 to 2020, then we'll put about 12 million pounds of this stuff on that field over that time. And either it all stays there, because the half-life of this stuff, this again is radium, uh, uranium, Okay, some other really nasty things and some toxic heavy metals like cadmium as well, by the way. It either stays on the field and therefore bioaccumulates over time, right? Because it's, it's, a thousand, or it's 200 pounds per acre this year, 200 pounds next year, 200 pounds the next year. They pretty much do this over and over again, year after year after year. It's the only way to keep getting these yields out when we're not building soil. We're growing in inert dust. And the only thing that's providing the plants what they need to survive isn't Brondo, it's NPK fertilizer, right? So the amount of radiation, that was Bill's point, is building up in these fields. And the, field, the, the ability for nature to lock up any of these toxins, radioactive or otherwise, is declining because there's less and less organic matter in the soil because we're not building natural systems. We're growing in this inert dirt. But what about the phosphogypsums? What do you do with it? What do you do with it? I mean, there's a, it's a, there's a lot of it. If you have one fertilizer plant, the amount of phosphogypsum produced is huge. You stack it up. What? Yeah, you pile it up. You just take a piece of property that's designed to become toxic. You do your best 
There's certain, you know, there's, you don't just throw it on the ground. Well, you kind of do, but there's things you have to do to the ground before you throw it on the ground. Basically, you build these big dams, and you start stacking the phosphogypsum, which is very wet and nasty. Just look one of these up, phosphogypsum stack, phosphorogypsum stack. Google that, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Or just put gypsum stack. It, it'll give you the same imagery. And this might be sealed with clay or sealed with some sort of really industrial heavy rubber liner or something like that. But sooner or later, something erodes it. There's Florida's huge on building, making this stuff now, and they've had sinkholes open up underneath them, and it leaches into the groundwater. Um, they've had hurricanes come in and blow out the sidewalls. It's this huge problem. It's radioactive and heavy metal-laden gick. That's not even the part that goes to the fields. But eventually, as you might imagine, you do this long enough, that stack gets pretty big, and you either have to make another one or you got to get rid of it. And even if you make another one, you run out of space where you can do this toxic behavior, and you got to got to figure out something to do with this giant pile of radioactive crap. Well, one of the things they're doing with it now is they're making road bases out of it. That sounds like a wonderful idea. And another thing that they're doing with it is they're actually saying, you know, in limited applications, we could use this for fertility. And when I look at all that, and then I couple it with the fact that we we're looking at a future where they want us to eat less meat, which means they want to produce less meat, which means they have less of this waste stream that they can turn into organic fertilizer, if you want to call it that. I don't even like that. Let's call it natural fertilizer. We're entering a place where if you want to be able to eat healthy meat, you're going to have to produce some of it yourself. And that means if you want to eat healthy plants, you're going to have to produce some of it yourself. And one of the things we learned from Jeff Lawton, who's like my greatest mentor, is that the composting process, organic matter itself, and the biological and fungal processes that go on, actually lock up some of these toxins to where you can take soil that has cadmium in it And all of a sudden, you don't really have a cadmium problem anymore. It's there, but it's locked up. But in these fields, these, these sterile fields that we keep dumping this, this rock phosphate on, that doesn't happen anymore. So we have to do this for ourselves. And to me, one of the ways that we can do this, because understand what's going on here. We're, the plants are trying to get all of these nutrients. NPK are only... A few of the nutrients. They're the primary things a plant. If a plant gets enough N, P, and K, in general, it can grow. But what we're talking about here are minerals. And there's lots of other minerals that these plants need. And a plant can be deficient in cobalt. A, a plant can be deficient in manganese. But the, the interesting thing is, all of these elements are there in abundance if the plants can get to them. And the way we remineralize soil is we put it through the digestive tract of an animal. And then we build biology in the soil. And then all of a sudden this place that was deficient in all of it. Because think about it, how, how, how else would this work? We, we already know that we can take, let's for instance take a system based on chickens and maybe some rabbits. And we create compost from plants that grow on the same property with the chickens and the rabbits, and from the chicken and rabbit waste. That's, that's pretty much everything we make the compost from. And then we put the compost onto soil. We build it up over time. We keep repeating that. We mulch with plant material from the property. We keep adding this waste stream, and the plants start to grow with no nutritional deficiencies. So where'd the coal, where'd the, where'd the cad, uh, cadmium come from? I'm sorry, cadmium. Where, where did the, uh, let's say, cobalt come from? The plant was deficient in cobalt or manganese. Where did it come from? Where did the potassium come from? The, where did the phosphorus come from? The phosphorus, we think we need to bust up a rock and, and pour acid on. Where did it come from? Well, the plant mined some of it. The animal processed it. And it created a closed-loop cycle, and the amount that becomes bioavailable continues to increase over time. In other words, all of the minerals that we need are already there. We just need to process them. And instead of processing them with the acid that we dump on them in this toxic way that we do things, in some ways it's still an acid process because part of the process is the acid in the stomach of the animal you're feeding returning it 
to the system from which it came. But it's very interesting. We can take something like a chicken. We can go into a place where there's calcium deficiencies. We can still produce enough food for the chicken on that land. It might be hard going at first. We can do it. But the chicken will lay an egg, and there's tons of calcium in the egg. And the best place for that egg shell to go is back to the chicken. If you feed the chicken the eggshells, they'll eat them. And then they'll crap them out. But a chicken literally is mining calcium in a place where we can't find any calcium. Something else I learned from Jeff. And that's about harvesting these waste streams. And there's so many ways to do this and function stack this to where not only in some instances do we create fertility so we can grow food for us, maybe we create fertility so we can grow food for them. If I primarily want to eat meat and eggs, then I don't need to grow a lot of vegetable matter for myself. But I need to feed my animals. And part of that we need to be doing more and more of. That's why I did a show recently before the shutdown on how we can grow food for chickens and ducks and things like that. So my first one that I got for you today in harvesting waste streams is something I'm really jazzed about, and I'm working out the details of this system right now. And this is actually growing a food that we're going to grow on a direct waste stream of the animal we're going to feed it back to. And then we're going to use that continued nutrient-based thing to create more fertility for other plants in the system, maybe for humans or maybe for the animals as well. And this is what really got me hot on this. This year, I had a major problem with one of my backyard ponds. I had a lot of fish die, and even the ones that didn't die, they were kind of miserable for a while, and it took a while to fix this system. And it was because I was using a plant called water lettuce. And water lettuce has this very fine root system, and if it takes up enough nutrient out of the water that it stops being healthy, the roots can fall off it, and that's exactly what happened. They got in the fish's gills, and it created a mechanical injury that even once I fixed the problem, I removed it all, I flushed the system through 100%, There's nothing left in the system that should be a problem. If you put a new fish in the system, it would be fine. But the mechanical injury to the gills of the fish eventually killed quite a, quite a number of the fish. So I was already going to bring a different floating aquatic plant into the system. And I was looking at azolla, duckweed, which has its limitations. Um, but I was also looking at a plant I've used before called water hyacinth, which has a lot less potential for this root fall off, root hair problem. And water hyacinth is considered invasive, and nobody should grow it. It's evil, and, and what have you. Well, unless you live in a place where it, it doesn't freeze, it's not going to become invasive because it can't overwinter when it freezes. So in Texas, they've said it's illegal because, well, we have parts of Texas where it doesn't freeze. Well, Texas is a big state. If you take the southern tip of Texas and put it where the, the most northern part of Texas is, that new piece of Texas will now touch Canada. Okay, just to kind of drive the point up. Just because something can be invasive in one part of Texas doesn't mean it can be invasive in all parts of Texas. So I'm not irresponsibly using this because I've had some people tell me oh, it could be very dangerous and whatever. Um, and in the places it is invasive, by the way, some guy growing in his backyard doesn't make the problem any worse. There's places where this stuff is is legitimately a problem. It's mismanaged. It's an unused. It's an unused resource, right? So it's the definition of pollution, according to Bill Mollison. But it turns out, it's incredible livestock feed. How incredible? It's all edible, but in general, the only animals I've found that eat the roots are ducks, which I happen to have. But almost everything else that humans raise will eat the rest of the plant: ducks, turkeys, chickens, geese, goats. Cattle, pigs will all eat every green part of it happily. They love it. If you do, however, dry it out, the leaf has a protein. The dry leaf has a protein uh, amount equal to soy with none of the problems that soy has. And we could, in places where we have this as an invasive plant, allow it to grow every year, which it does anyway, to the point where it's not quite clogged the, the, the water systems yet. It's still manageable. We could build mechanized equipment that goes through, picks all this stuff up, basically a barge with a big flopper wheel on it, and we could build mechanized equipment. Some of the things that we do with mechanization 
building a piece of equipment that basically cuts the roots off these plants would not be difficult. It can be chopped up and dried. And when it's dried, it's stable. And again, it has a protein that is equal to soybeans. And it's very palatable to animals. And we can replace 20 to 30% of various animal feed formulations with dried water hyacinth leaf and stem. Cool, huh? And that would be great if somebody did it. And that's what I'm trying to get at. There's these huge problems. The solutions aren't easy, but in the words of Bill Mollison, again, they're embarrassingly simple, right? They're embarrassingly simple, how simple that is to come up with. We have places all over the world where now in you know, people native to the area are using these solutions on smaller scale. There's places in Africa where, you know, we grow poultry here, like small farmer poultry here. And to us, you know, going down to the feed store and buying, you know, an organic uh, a natural or even a conventional chicken feed is not a big deal to us. But the, a lot of these small farmers in places in like Central Africa, it's hard to get and it's very expensive. It's very expensive. It's also like, hey, that could be human food. But they want to grow their chickens and they grow various types of chickens. They grow them for meat. They're not your, uh, your frankenbirds that we grow here in the United States, these corners, cross hens or anything. They're just their specific chickens. And they figured out that, hey, they can make chicken feed out of this stuff. They can either go out and just get it fresh and green, but they can also process it and sell it within their own economies. So if they can do it, we could be doing this in Florida where it is a serious environmental problem right now. The other thing we could be doing with it in Florida is there's places where, again, this stuff grows. We do all we can to control it and get rid of it. We kill it with, with herbicides, aquatic herbicides. It dies in rot and what was taking nutrient out of the water now is adding more nutrient to the water. So, again, we could strategically determine when is the best time to harvest this stuff after it's taken a tremendous amount of nutrient out of the watershed that's excess nutrient we put in there from our human activities. We could then mechanically separate it into feed and roots, and even if we don't feed the roots to ducks or chickens or whatever... The roots could be composted or fed to black soldier fly larvae, which makes more livestock feed and more... Con like, we do all this, but we're not. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to put a couple water tanks for ducks to swim and poop in, in my duck holding area. And I'm going to put a pipe underground that goes to some other tanks, and then more on this will come, that hold water. And when I go out in the morning, I'll have it set up to where all I do is open a valve... And the tank, there's two 50-gallon stock tanks drain, and some larger tanks that I'm not going to try to explain in a, a, a podcast will fill up. And eventually, they'll fill up enough that they'll overflow. And every day when I go out and open up and let, you know, two 50-gallon tanks, you're looking at like 80 gallons of water because they're going to splash some around and what have you. Let it out, flush it through, and then close it, and those tanks will overflow. We'll get to those in a second. Fill the new ones back up. Now they have fresh water to, to swim, drink, and eat, and poop in because they love to do all that. Again, this is innate behavior. The birds will do this. Now into the tanks that the, the, the overflow heads to, some of them will be full of water hyacinth. And this stuff grows really fast. And it will process the duck waste stream into food for the ducks. And it will be on the other side of a fence where the ducks can't get to it unless I decide to let them in. That way I don't have to have ducks trying to climb up in there and, and, and mess with that side of things. Right on the other side of the fence will be a compost pit. And all I will do every day through the whole growing season, which this stuff will grow about nine months out of the year here before it dies in the freeze, is go on the other side of the fence and just throw it over the fence into the compost as much as I think they need for that day or maybe for a few days' worth. And when they're eating, they've eaten it to the point where... You know, they could probably use some more. Whenever that happens, I'll throw some more over the fence. Maybe once a day, maybe once every three days, whatever it is. And I'll be feeding the duck something really high protein. Now, there's an interesting thing about this. You might think, well, is that safe for the duck? Right? Well, first of all, again, they crap in water and they drink it. They do it. You can't stop them from doing it. So they do that anyway. But this has actually been done at a commercial scale already, using water hyacinth. And the disease problems in the ducks went down, and the purity of the water coming out the other end of the stream went way, way up. So it actually makes both sides better. 
Now you're getting free food for your ducks. But those tanks that grow the hyacinth will also overflow. You know, once they get to their, their limit of how much capacity they have, every day when you drain into them, that amount of water is going to go out the other side. You lose some to evaporation. So if 80 gallons goes in, maybe 65 gallons comes out. Those tanks will overflow to a, a system of trees. And those trees will provide either forage or fodder, maybe nuts for us. I don't know what they're going to be in. But maybe it's only six trees. Maybe it's four trees. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. But literally, the act of providing the ducks water and food will take care of the trees. I think I can do this to the point where the area that this is going to happen in is about a, I'd say about a tenth of an acre. That area can probably, on this same irrigation, grow two or three crops a year of millet and maybe one crop a year of barley using the Fukuoka method, which is you sow the grain into the previous um, the previous crop. Now, what we can do then is when we grow a millet, for instance, I can just let the ducks onto that side. Like I said, they can go there when I want to let them go there. So the millet's grown. It's got heads on it. You let the ducks in. They feast on it for a couple days until they've really worked it over hard. Go in and you sow in the next crop, Scythe down what's standing still. Don't put the ducks back until another crop comes. You can get a crop of millet in about six weeks. So we can get three crops going through our, our primary growth season. Then we grow all winter long a crop of barley and do the same thing. Now, that fertility of that entire space is constantly going up with almost no work. The ducks are be, getting, I think I can get my ducks 20 to 25% of their diet on this system, not counting the millet and barley or anything else we grow in there. I'm just talking about the, the, the water hyacinth. And I think I can do that again about nine months out of the year. And it's almost no work. And then whatever's left behind in that compost pile will just go into my normal poultry-based composting system, which I'll tell you about in a second. Now, to me, now you're starting to connect elements And you're turning multiple problems into multiple solutions. Ducks poop in water. That's a wastewater problem. If it goes to trees, then the trees grow and the waste is processed and the waste becomes a resource. But if we put it through water hyacinth, then to trees and possibly row crops as well, now we've really got something. If that's also putting food back to the ducks. And if we know through studies that have already been done that this actually reduces disease pressure on ducks, And that may not have any real difference on mine. I don't have any disease problems, as it is. And, and the, the, the place these studies were done were more commercial-type operations. But you start to see how this all works. So now you have incredibly fertile compost, but you're also directly applying fertility to the trees and to crops. But you're putting it through this, this biological filtration system, and there'll be multiple layers of this before the water comes out the end. I won't go deep into that today. But I want to start off with something really complex and really exciting. Now, let's move on from there. I mentioned my basic poultry composting system. And this is something I just I just did this uh, this week where I was off. My, my once-a-year part of it that's actual work. It takes a couple hours once a year to do the really heavy-duty work. But And I've talked about this before, but it's really simple. What I do is right by my chicken coop and duck coop, I have some center blocks that make a pretty big square. Uh, I'd say it's about four foot by eight foot. It's about, a, it's about the size of a four by eight garden bed, the, the space that, that, that it has in the center. And I put a little bit of bedding, used bedding, at the bottom of it. So, you know, it's about a foot deep. A little bit, maybe an inch of the last of the bedding to come out uh, from the deep litter system in the chicken coop. And then all year long, I just take all the kitchen scraps and anything that comes from anywhere on the property that needs to be composted, and I just throw it in the pit. I don't turn it, just throw it in the pit. And every night when the ducks go back to their house, they check out the new stuff in the pit. Chickens do too. They get in there, they root around. They find food waste that they want to eat. They eat it. They dig in it. They turn it over. They crap in it, right? And all that waste stays in that one spot. And I just keep doing that. And it takes about a year 
because some of it oxidizes, some of it gets consumed, some of it gets kicked out, what have you. It takes about a year to completely fill that. And at that point, you have kind of varying stages. You have stuff that's well broken down and stuff that's brand new. But it's all great. It's got a good mix of minerals and nutrients and everything in it. And often at night when I go out there to, uh, to put the birds to bed, if I take a leak, I'll take a leak in it too. So it gives my own nitrogen response back to it. And that's one of my waste streams now being harnessed. Never stinks, never smells, it's never covered in flies. It's constantly being worked over by the animals. It'll be full by the end of the year. And at that point, I will have put multiple layers of litter in the duck house. Now, what goes in there is straw and wood chips. And usually that alternates. So when I cleaned it all out recently and did the next part, I'll tell you about in a second, I put down two bales of straw in there. The chickens all tore it apart, had a blast rifling through it, pooping on it. And that'll sit in there for a better part of a month. And then I'll, I'll go over to my wood pile, which all are wood chips from, from uh, that people would otherwise be taking to a landfill. These are from uh, tree trimmers and stuff like that. Ever I see them, I, hey, guys, you can get rid of that stuff over here. And they just dump it there. So I'll take a couple wheelbarrow loads of that, and I'll throw that in there. And eventually what happens when you do this deep litter system is you go in the coop one morning, and you open it up, and it doesn't smell nice anymore. It starts to smell a little funky. And it shouldn't smell funky all the time. Like, that's not, chicken coops shouldn't really stink. They kind of smell like chicken, but they really shouldn't smell like chicken crap. If they do, you either need to change the litter or you need to add litter. All I do is just keep adding it. So I'll add another, I'll add a layer of wood chips. And when it starts to get funky, I'll add a layer of straw. When it starts to get funky, I'll add, see how that goes? I'll just do that. And I have to do that about four times a year. This is actually really easy work, though. Because the straw bales, you just take the straw bale put it in the chicken coop, cut the wires off it, and throw it out all over the place. It takes like five minutes to do because you don't have to really do much work. The birds are going to come in there and be like, oh, boy, new stuff. And the wood chips, you just fill up a, a wheelbarrow or two of wood chips, roll it in there and dump it and kick it around with your feet, and then they'll take care of it from there as well. And wood chips are light. They're easy to work with. The, 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 the key thing that makes wood chips easy to shovel, don't use a shovel. Use a pitchfork. Use a, a, a multi-time manure fork, and it just takes five minutes of work to put you know a, a load of wood chips in there. So maybe ten minutes total because it's two wheelbarrow loads. Done. Simple. Do that all year. And like I said, at the end of the year, that pit will be full. This is the one couple hours of work, right? So you put some good music on, you get your fork out, and you take... And you, you take a, a bit of the stuff out of the pit, and you put it next to the pit in a pile, layer of it. Then you go get a wheelbarrow load of your deep litter mulch out of your chicken coop. And you dump it on there, and then you cover that with another layer of the stuff out of the pit. And then you go get another thing from and you just keep alternating like that. You make layers of it. And if you run out of one, you just finish it with the rest of the other. And every time you put a layer or two down, soak it with a garden hose. Well, compost is supposed to be light. No, trust me. For what we're doing here, no work method, we're going to soak it. Completely drenched and soaked. Because what's going to happen is that stuff coming out of your coop is going to be bone dry. Some of it's been bone dry for over a year or more, and it can become hydrophobic. It doesn't really want to take water in, but it will. So we soak it till the whole pile is there, a big sopping wet pile. If you want... You can let your birds pull it apart a little bit for a couple days. Whatever they pull off, kind of just throw it back up on. Then make sure it's good and wet again. Throw a tarp over it and walk away. Do nothing. Don't even look at it. Now, yeah, if we turn this, like Jeff Lawton teaches us, we can turn that in three days and then every two days, and after two days and then every three days or something like that, in 22 days, it could be completely finished compost. Sure, we can do that. Sounds like a lot of work. If you just throw a tarp over it, about 90 days later, when you pull the tarp off of it, it will be some of the prettiest compost you've ever seen. It won't be perfect, but it'll be fine. It'll lose almost no volume because you tarped it. And when is that? March. <laughs> when do we need to be putting our compost down? When do we need you know little buckets of compost to put in our transplants? When do we need to... Top our garden with new compost, March, mid-March, end of March. So then you'll have another day of work where you have to bring it with a wheelbarrow, whatever, to your garden. 
closer it is to your garden, the easier that is. So you have maybe one full day of work in making compost a year with that method. And all I'm going to do when I add this water hyacinth, water tank, irrigation system to what I'm doing is just put more material into that same system. Really, really simple. And there are so many ways to harness this. Let's think about some other really simple ways. How about from bunnies to worms to compost? So rabbit manure is one of the best manures you can possibly get. The, I mean, I don't really need another animal and another thing to do on my property, but if I were to add an animal at this point, it would probably be rabbits. They produce a tremendous amount of meat, and eventually I may do it just for that. If I get dark, a lot of what I don't do is because I produce plenty for myself when it comes to meat production and meat bartering, and there's certain things my wife just won't eat. And if she's not going to eat it, it's not kind of worth doing it for one person. But rabbits, the manure is so high quality. And you can feed them so much from things like just a bag mower or a scythe and growing like ryegrass and, and clover, etc. A little bit of maybe some alfalfa, etc. You can grow almost all your own rabbit food. That They make sense to have maybe just for fertility alone. But in general, what people do is they set up their rabbit hutches so their rabbits crap and the crap, the, the crap falls right through the hutch into some way that it can be collected. Well, we can just basically throw that rabbit manure as, as a, right onto the crops. Rabbit manure is one of the few manures that we can use without composting. It doesn't mean it doesn't get better if we compost it. So what we can do is we can put some bins under our rabbits, and those bins can be full of composting worms. And we can just let the rabbits crap into the bin and the, the worms process the rabbit manure. And we continue to add things like straw and other dry organic waste to that as well, which the worms will also process. And once the bin fills up, you just pull the bin out, maybe wet it down a little bit, throw a tarp over it. Give the worms a little more time to work, and you've got perfectly processed compost. Or you can use it right away because it's a cool manure is what we call it. But now we're producing worms, worm castings, and rabbit manure, and we're not doing hardly any work again. And we could use something for bins like the really expensive $13, 21-gallon concrete mixing trays that we get at Home Depot and Lowe's. Drill a few holes in the bottom of them for, for, for drainage. Give a little bit of starter so our worms have a place to be. And even if we don't put worms in there, something will come in there. Something will happen. Black soldier flies or some other soil creatures will end up in there. It will happen. And if we use a little bit of the of the last batch, kind of seeding the next batch, we'll keep building that biology. That'd be one way to do it. So now we've got worms, we've got worm castings, we've got compost, we've got rabbits, we've got meat, etc. We could also do from bunnies to chickens to compost. So we can have that compost pit underneath our rabbits, but instead of excluding chickens, if we have chickens, we can let them in. They'll eat some of the rabbit manure. It's okay, it won't hurt them. They'll dig through there. They'll eat all kinds of little microorganisms to us anyway. We don't really see them. Chickens have better eyes than us. Uh, they'll eat all kinds of bugs and insects, etc. And if we build that pit deep enough, the chicken getting, can get in, but in its scratching activity, it doesn't throw everything out. Again, once it gets full to a certain capacity, we can pull it out, put a new one in, and start over. And now we're feeding the chickens. We're controlling pest cycles. We're making even better compost. Now we're doing a chicken and rabbit manure com combination because if you've ever watched a chicken eat, almost as fast as they eat, it comes out the other end. And ducks will go into that system as well. It can be a little more difficult with ducks because now you've got to figure out a way to get the duck in because ducks don't like to go up and into things. That's one of the good things about them if you want to keep them out of a garden. You build a, guard, a raised bed high enough, ducks don't bother it. Chickens will climb up there. So you might have to figure a way out to get your ducks attracted to it. But ducks can work that system as well. That system can pretty much just be a little bit kind of walled in on three sides with an open front. And then you're going to have to shovel the material out rather than just slide it out. But there's tons of ways to do this. The little 21-gallon uh, uh, concrete mixing trays, ducks get in and out of those, no problem. The problem with chickens is they'll kind of throw it out of there. It's not really high enough to keep chickens from throwing it out of there. Though bantams, which is what I raise, they, don't, they just don't throw stuff as much. They kind of move it around, but they don't. You'll have less of that that fling off problem, right? You could put down a tarp and put your things around uh, your 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 bins on the tarp, and then the fling can just be kind of 
rolled up in the tarp and dumped back in. There's tons of ways to do this, and they're almost all right. There's almost none of them that are wrong, just some work better in different situations. How about grow your fertility, feed your birds, and repeat? How, how easy can this be? So one way we can move chickens around, if we can put stakes in the ground, which I unfortunately can't do, is through electronetting. So we can take electric nets and a solar charger, and we can move our birds around. Well, what we can also do is certain areas, we can grow specific crops for those birds, as long as they're excluded until we want them in there. Uh, crops that we could grow would be things like, we talked about this in the show, but they love peas. A lot of people think chickens don't like like field peas, black-eyed peas, uh, etc., cow peas. They actually love them. They don't like them dried. You have to mill them once they're dried. And there are actually some anti-nutrients in a dried pea that kind of make a chicken a little less... A lot of times when an animal doesn't eat something, maybe they don't need to be eating it. And that's where you see, like, chickens generally don't eat a lot of amaranth. But if you dry the amaranth out, grind up the leaves, and put it in their food, then they eat it happily. Well, and you find out that there are anti-growth factors in green amaranth, wet amaranth, Uh, that affect chickens adversely. But if you dry it out, I'm not talking about the grain here, I'm talking about the leaf. If you dry it out, those those things are deactivated. And the chicken will eat the dried leaf, but it won't eat the wet leaf, as though it knows it's bad for it, Inten intrinsic intelligence. But things like cow pea and alfalfa, etc., chickens love. Well, they also are fertility uh, gains because they're nitrogen-fixing legumes. So when they when they go through their process of photosynthesis, One of their byproducts is they react with bacteria in the soil and they make nitrogen nodules. So if we grow, we have a row that we use as a garden and we grow cow pea in it and then we take the pea away, even if we take the pea away and we drop it to the soil, the next time we grow something else in there, it will have more nitrogen available because the peas have made the nitrogen available through a natural biological process. Well, what if we just let the chickens in, and they just eat it. And when the peas are green, if you want to use that term, they'll eat them happily, and they'll eat everything. They'll eat the leaf, they'll eat the stem, they'll eat the pea, and they'll eat the pod. Trust me, I've seen them do it. They'll have a blast doing it. So we can either allow our electronet-contained chickens into each of those sections as we decide the timing's right, Or if we have a way to exclude birds, so we kind of free range, but when we open an area, let's say we have four or five garden plots, and when one's in rest, we grow this type of a mix. We let the birds in. They eat it. That is like us scything it. That's like us dropping it. They'll drop it straight. Whatever they don't eat will be smashed right to the ground. While they're doing that, they'll poop. While they're doing that, They're going to eat all the insects and pests and tons of the weed seeds that have, have, have accumulated in there while this was going on. Not to mention the plant material itself is these big bushy plants there. As we have winds in our summers, it's going to collect dust and drop fertility on the ground. It's going to be worked in by the chickens. And then when the chicken leaves, we can either grow a crop for ourselves, another crop for the chickens, or just repeat and do this again. That's another way. How about quail to wood chips to worms to compost? So quail are probably the best small livestock for the most people. I know it's hard to believe because it's not something we do a lot of in the United States, but when I really look at it, the, 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 the only real competition for that would probably be rabbits, and you don't get, you don't get eggs from rabbits. You only get meat. And, and the reason I'd say the rabbit might win that battle is the rabbit is far easier to feed on things that you grow for the rabbit. Quail, really, I have not cracked. I don't even think I can begin to crack how to grow quail without purchasing seed or meal of some, some sort from somewhere else. The good news is, for what they produce, they use not much. There are some things you can grow for them, uh, and it's inexpensive to raise quail. Right, So you have to get you know your feed for them, but... Um, They also poop a lot. Quail are another critter. It's like they're eating and crapping at the same time. It seems gross, but it's just what they do. Well, what you do with your quail cage is you have a bottom where the poop falls through. So put wood chips there. Now, some people have indoor stacked rack systems. 
So you put a catch pan under there. Um, if it was outside, you could do a system very similar to the one I mentioned with rabbit hutches, where it falls further to the ground, and then you're, you're collecting the waste. Now, again, chickens can be let into there. Ducks can be let into there. They can be excluded from there. It's up to you. But the best carbon that I've found is like wood shavings. But plain old wood chips will work just fine. So you let that build up, and somewhere you have a worm bin. And you dump that maybe a couple times a week into the worm bin, and the worms will process this stuff amazingly fast, amazingly fast. If you can do a black soldier fly, that's even better because the black soldier fly larvae are an incredible feedstock to go to fish or poultry. But there's so many ways to do this and stack this together. And if we're leaving this out of our designs, we are bad designers. Fundamentally, we are bad designers if we are not harvesting these waste streams. Everybody talks about it. But I find it very seldom that it's actually well executed in most situations. The real key here is, number one, we want to control where waste falls to the greatest degree possible. Now, that doesn't always mean collecting it into compost. But if we're running chickens free range, they crap wherever they crap. If we put any sort of control, whether it's paddock shift, electronet, tractoring, We control how long they are in an area, and we know about how much they drop, so we control where it drops and when. Or we can contain an animal, or we can partially do this. Like We're not all going to button this down super tight. We all have limitations with our property. One of my limitations is my paddock shift will always be limited if I don't want a tractor and I don't want a tractor. Right? When I say tractor, I'm talking about like a chicken tractor. We have a, a cage that you move around that chickens are inside of. I don't want to do that. I, I, I have no problem with doing that for meat production. I don't want to do that with a layer flock. I would love to be able to build a small, portable chicken coop and have electronet. I'd love to be able to do it with my ducks. It's not doable here because of the soil conditions. But what we can do is we can control where some of the waste falls. Most of what I gave you today did that one way or another. When you build a compost pit next to the house that your livestock live in that has stuff in it that they think is yummy, they're going to put a significant amount of their waste in that pit. Additionally... When you put them in a coop at night and they're in there for, you know, in the winter they might be in there for eight to ten hours. In the summer they might be in there more like six to eight hours. During that period of time they're going to do a significant amount of waste production as well and it's going to drop in that deep litter. One way or another you want to figure out where the waste is going to fall and control how it falls and do it in a way that maximizes its, its combination with carbon. So when you have nitrogen and carbon together, that's when you get the composting, the natural composting action, that breakdown. And if you have nitrogen and, and, and carbon together, but it's dry, it doesn't really happen. It happens very, very slowly. And that's why we can have them crap in that chicken coop or duck house for six months or even the way I do it. I do it for a year at a time before I clean it out. Now, I have a much smaller flock. When I used to have a lot more birds, I did that process that I do once a year now. I did it twice a year. I had a lot more waste I was producing. I had a lot more carbon, right? So I had to do it. But with you know, my flock of about 20 ducks and a half dozen chickens, once a year, I, there's no smell to it at all. It doesn't stink. It really doesn't. But now we're, we're, it's together and it's dry. That's why we have to wet it down. You have to have those three things, carbon, nitrogen, and moisture. And you get that breakdown process. You want to make moving it or placing it as easy as possible. When I talked about my system using water hyacinth, I want the water hyacinth tank with, with, with no ability for the duck to get in there and mess that up, like and destroy all their own food stocks. But I want it as close to the pit that the ducks are going to work as possible. I literally want to just stick, because these things are about 30 inches high, these tanks I'm going to be using. And I want to be able to stand there and grab a couple, like two handful, two hands together, big old handful of stuff, lift it up over the fence and let go. That's what I want to do with that system. And then that's going to be right next to the chicken coop. So next year, when all that deep mulch has to come out and get combined with that pit, they're right there. Boom, they're done. If I had, if I had designed my property 100% from the get-go, which I didn't, the chicken coop, if I put a chicken coop in like I have, it wouldn't be where it is. It would be centered over in my garden system. So then the compost would have a very short trip to the garden. But again, we're talking about during transplants, 
and once or twice a year we're doing is a top dressing. It's a little bitty lawn tractor and, a, and our little trailer we have. It's not any real work. It's no big deal to move it. But the closer you can put it together, the more likely it'll happen. You have to get the animals to do the work for you through their innate behaviors. I didn't have to train ducks and chickens to go in that compost pit. All I had to do was put it where they would see it, right, and put stuff in it they like. The thing that would have been training is to train them somehow to stay away from it. Like keeping good luck keeping them out of it. Now, in some cases, you might have to encourage a behavior. Like I said, if you have certain collection trays that are a little bit deep, ducks may not be as quick to go into them. They might be a little bit Ducks are leery of certain things that look funny to them, far more so than a chicken. Chickens are dumb. I mean, that's really comes out. Ducks are smarter. So when they look at something they're not sure about, and you can see it on a duck's, little duck's face, man. I don't know about this. They, they don't trust it. I've, and it's, it's little things. Like, I've seen, like, you drop something, like a pair of gloves, right? And you didn't realize you dropped them. And then you let the ducks out. And they come running out of their house, and they head to the gate. And there's two gloves laying there in front of the gate. And they all kind of, like, stop. And you're in the coop picking up eggs, and you hear them acting up. And you go out, and they're all kind of just in a clump. And they're looking at this thing because they don't know what it is, and it's not where it's supposed to be. Where the chicken's over, they're like pecking it, right? So you might have to, like with the case of a duck, you might have to encourage the behavior a little bit. If you want them to go into a pit, you might want to put some stuff just outside of the pit. But once they know it's there, the the duck is going to go into something like that. They're going to stick their beak into it. They're going to start opening and closing their beak, and they're going to move it back and forth. And they're going to muzzle it around. They're going to nuzzle it around. They're going to pull on it. They're going to chew things. If it gets really wet because it rains, they're going to go in there and they're going to make a mud hole out of it. They're going to they're going to move their beaks and they're going to they're going to filter feed through. They're going to do that. All you have to know is know that they're going to do that, and then you harness the behavior. You don't have to teach them to do that. You don't have to train them to do any of this stuff. This is their innate behavior. That chicken, you put in a compost pit like that near your chickens, and the only thing you have to worry about. Again, is this the, are the sidewalls high enough that the chicken's not going to fling everything out of the pit? Right? As long as you do that, you're not going to have a problem. You want to harness those innate behaviors. And you want to tie systems and function stacking together. How many times can you use the products of a system before they entropy off of your property? Because I'm starting to look at this water hyacinth system, and as simple as I was making in the beginning, I just want to make sure I design with the end of mind. Even if I don't tie it all in at first, I want to make sure everything's designed so anything I might want to do, I can do. Maybe a little micro-swale action, a little different way that we can control the overflows. Maybe there's three or four swales in the system. Maybe there's kind of a manifold where we can control where the water comes out so that we can put it in one swale one day, another swale the next day. How can we do this? But how can we minimize human labor? Minimize effort so that it will get done. And how do you make it part of the process? Since it's part of giving the ducks water, and the ducks have to be given water every day, we're going to give the ducks water every day. If we can minimize the effort, we can maximize the natural occurrence. Every day this thing will happen. Then so once we understand what's happening, we know what to harvest. Once we build a system to harvest that, it's done. It's game over. And now you have a system that even if a person comes over to take care of your place, doesn't understand how to build it, doesn't want to understand how to build it, you can literally make a little org chart. Go out in morning, turn valve 1A until tank strain. Right? Close valve. Turn water on. Fill tank. Shut water off once tank is full. And then maybe you have... You know, open valve 1B to water swale 1 on day 1. Open, you know, valve 2B on day 2 to water swale 2B. But you, you can even automate all that. It may not be worth it. It depends. But you could build a system like that. You could even automate the dumping and refilling in the door to the chicken coop. You probably could build an arm that took a certain amount of material for the ducks to eat out of the tank every day. I think that's about too far. But literally, this can be something that you'd set up that does all of this stuff, including reducing your feed bill, watering plants, harnessing fertility, making compost, feeding your birds, keeping disease pressures down, 
and creating a long-term fertility output for the rest of your uh, thing, and, but it's less than five minutes of work a day. It's less work than I do now dumping the kiddie pools every day, which I would probably keep doing because I still am going to want them moving around the property as well. But it really isn't hard, and there are some ways that are far better than others to do this, but what you need to do is you need to tie these in on your own property based on your own timeline, how much work you want to do, how much work you can do, and you really need to think about in all these systems. I kind of alluded to there at the end, but it is when I go away, what happens? So when you go away, you're either going to have to have people you know and trust kind of farm sit for you or homestead sit for you one way or another, or you have to have automation take care of it. And one thing I want you to really think about when it comes to animals, guys, they do tie you to your property more than not having them. The person that's just a gardener can automate irrigation and go away for a week. The person that's a gardener and a cat owner, I guess if you fill the litter box high enough, if it's an indoor cat, fill the food high enough, fill the water, you know, automatic water, you can go away for a week and come home and the cat's fine and the, and the plants are fine. When it comes to chickens, ducks, pigs, cattle, quail, all this stuff, it requires more care and you can only automate so much. So don't get too excited about this and go over the top and then try to build your systems to not only harvest, build, and catch fertility and perform multiple functions, they can be incredibly complex in what they do. But in how it's done, make that incredibly simple so that you can train a person in five minutes. Here's how to take care of this system. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing all of your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you're going to shop online today or anytime in the future, just go to tspaz.com before you do your shopping. And if you start there, no matter what you're, you're going to buy, you can help us out. Uh, but you'll also find all the stuff that I review and recommend. Today what I have for you is lesson item of the day, and it's more a, hey, here's a really great deal. DeWalt has a two-pack of their 5-amp-hour batteries on sale I think you save 20 bucks on two of them. 20 bucks isn't a huge amount, but 20 bucks is 20 bucks. And my rule with DeWalt is if you need something and they put it on sale, buy it. Because they don't put it on sale often, and they, they you know, they, and when they do come around, it doesn't last long. Uh, batteries probably go on sale more than the tools, um, but not a great deal more than the tools. So if you need some extra batteries, the 5-amp-hour batteries, man, those are hoss. Those 20-volt max 5-amp-hours. Uh, check it out today. And also remember, you can help support the show by becoming a member of the MSB. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Not a lot to say about this one. Certainly fits the day and the time perfectly. It's by a band called Sister Hazel. This came out in 2007, but I had never heard of this song before. It's called It's a New Year, Just Get Along. Again, by a band called Sister Hazel. They're kind of an alternative Uh, pop band uh, good sound to it but it's it's really about the fact that in the end we would all be better off if we could figure out how to just coexist I know that's really difficult because honestly if you listen to this show and you're part of this audience in this community you're probably the person that all you want is to be left alone you're probably one of the easiest person people out there to get along with and yet often you feel like you're the one most targeted Uh, by others who want to control your life. In the end, though, just as all the systems in nature adapt, it's, us to, it's up to us to adapt. It's up to us to use the gray matter between our ears, and it's up to us to figure out how to just get along. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Just get along, just get along, can't we all just get along? It's a new year, and it's a new dawn, can't we all just get along? Live in the light, the holiday light, every day, every night. It's a new year, and it's a new Take
It's a new year, and it's a new 